I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians, chapter 1. One of the common problems that missionaries face in the world is the problem of syncretism. Syncretism is the blending of Orthodox Christian beliefs with local superstitions, taboos, or other cultural beliefs that have existed for centuries. So, for instance, back when I was in college and I was in Peru on a mission trip, we went to a very old Christian cathedral that had been built by the Spanish when they sought to conquer Peru. And there was a, a, a very large, lifelike, uh, frankly, a breathtaking statue of Mary. But what was interesting was around her neck was this silver crescent moon on a chain. And I asked the tour guide, what is that? And, and she said, oh, that's the, uh, that's the traditional symbol of the Incan goddess. Okay, that's syncretism. You have the story of Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, and in the, in the Incaman they have blended that with their own beliefs of, of life and worship and gods. Truth be told, though, this is not just a problem for missions. This is even a problem for us here. Christians will quote country music songs as godly wisdom. They will listen to friends, advice, and opinions, despite the fact that those things uh, completely and obviously contradict the plain meaning and teaching of God's Word. Just this past week, Melinda and I were watching, I think it was on Friday night, one of these true mystery uh, shows. And um, it was interesting because the girl that was murdered, her parents uh, professed to be... uh, Christians appear to be pretty devout Christians, and yet they also, in frustration with the police, appeared on a talk show to seek the advice of a psychic as to the identity of their daughter's murder. That's syncretism. And syncretism is ultimately spawned by a belief, whether explicitly stated or not, that Christ is not wholly sufficient that he is not wholly sufficient for our lives. And that's not a new problem either. In fact, the same problem of syncretism faced the early Christians, the same problem of, of a lack of belief in the sufficiency of Christ faced the early Christians. And we see this specifically at the church of Colossae. There, a group of adversaries had entered into this church causing these young believers to doubt the sufficiency of Christ. Some were doubting their salvation. Others were seeking help through angels and visions. Others were trying to enter into mysterious and secret knowledge of God beyond the plain teachings of the Bible. And frankly, all of that still happens today among God's people. And in all of it, people are failing to see the great sufficiency of Jesus Christ in both His person and work. So in Colossians 1 really throughout the entire book of Colossians, but specifically Paul begins his main argument in chapter 1 by holding up the person and work of Christ in such a way so as to show him to be preeminent in all things, that these early Christians might see both his sovereignty and his sufficiency for every area of their life. 
And this morning as we continue this series called Vintage Christianity, looking at the historic uh, core, the fundamental beliefs that Christians have always believed, we come to uh, our doctrine of Christ himself. What do Christians believe? What have they always believed about the person and work of Christ? And so this morning we want to look to Colossians 1 to let Paul help us to see what these earliest Christians believed and what all true Christians through history have believed about Jesus Christ. Now, if you're looking at the note sheet, you will see that our focus is on verses 15 through 20. But in order to get kind of a larger sweep of things, I would like us to begin reading at verse 9. Paul has made his uh, introduction. Uh, He has expressed his thankfulness for the Colossian believers. And then in verse 9, he says this. And so from the day we heard, that is, heard of their faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is, that is the Son, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of God. This morning as we look to this passage, I want us to see the answers to three questions. And seeking to understand who God is, I want us to answer three questions. What is or who is Christ in relationship to God? What is Christ's relationship to creation? And what is Christ's relationship to the church? Those are the three questions we're going to ask and answer from Colossians 1 this morning. First of all, Christ's relationship to God, He is the Son. He is the Son. Paul's chapter uh, here is, a, uh, is seamless in its move from greeting to the Colossians in the verse two verses to his thanksgiving for them and their faith in verses 3 through 8 to the passage we read where he prays for them and tells them what he prays for them to showing how it is he can pray these things because Christ is the one who is preeminent over all things. Very specifically in verse 13, he says that Christ is God the Father's Son. And he goes on to explain what that means for the person of Christ. And he says two things. First, he says this, that as God the Son, as God's Son, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, when we think of image, we often think of picture. For example, again, on that mission trip to Peru, uh, on our last day, we were, um, before we left, the missionary said, you need to see some Inca ruins before you leave. So they took us to Machu Picchu, which if you don't know, is one of the the, the greatest and clearest examples of Inca civilization. It's also about 9,000 feet above sea level. So uh, it's, uh, it's quite the hike when you get up there. 
Uh, you take a bus most of the way. Uh, but it, it's just a, a beautiful sight. And, and mentally, I have images of what that looked like. I have images of myself and my friends mugging for pictures on the edge of a cliff, looking down at tiny cars look like ants from this vantage point of the ruins themselves. But frankly, I don't trust my memories that much. And you better believe I took a camera and exhausted all of the film taking pictures, images, capturing images of Machu Picchu. And when we think of image, that's very often what we think of, isn't it? You have the real thing uh, there in uh, Peru, just outside of Urubamba and Cusco. You have Machu Picchu, but... I also have the image of it. Well, frankly, that's the exact opposite of what Paul's talking about here when he talks about Christ being the image of the invisible God. The word that he used implies something more than just a capturing of um, something of the appearance of the real thing. Rather, he uses a word that describes and implies a shared form or appearance of the real thing. So, for instance, in, in idolatry and in idols in the first century, uh, they didn't believe that that, that that idol, that that little statue, perhaps a very large statue, was just an image of the God. They believed that in some way it was a physical representation of that God. And likewise, Paul is saying to us, he is saying to the Colossians, Christ is not simply a projection of God. He is not simply a shadow on the wall cast off by the glory of God, but rather the Son is of the same substance as the Father. He is the same substance as God himself. And so Paul will say Christ is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Paul wants us to understand this. If we have seen Christ... We have seen God. The invisible God that no one has seen has made himself known. He has made himself visible through God the Son, through Jesus Christ. Now we see this same belief taught elsewhere in the Bible where John the Apostle says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Likewise, in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, we are told Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews says he is more than just a reflection or a projection. The Son bears the exact imprint of his nature. And when Paul says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, that's what he wants us to understand as well. That's why he says, secondly, Christ exists as the fullness of God. Christ is the image of the invisible God, but secondly, he, is, he, is the, he exists as the fullness of God as well. Look at verse 19 where he says about, about Christ, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So what we need to understand is this, Christ is not part of God, nor is he simply a God-like being. Unlike those early heretics or New Age thinkers today, Christ did not merely have a God consciousness in him. No, Paul says in him is the fullness of God. Fullness speaks to totality, to completeness. How much of God is in Christ? All of God is in Christ. Everything that God is, Jesus is. So Paul does not leave us wiggle room about who Christ is, does he? He is clear that you cannot escape the reality both in Paul's writings or in the rest of the New Testament. This is Christ's relationship to God. He is God. He is God the Son, the Beloved, from the Father, fully and completely divine, the very image of the invisible God. 
Now later in the sermon we will come back to see why this is so important for Christian belief and what difference it makes in our life this morning. But right now we want to answer the second question, and that is this. What is Christ's relationship to creation? We saw his relationship to God. He is God the Son. He is fully God, the very image of the invisible God. And now we want to see Christ's relationship to creation in that he is the sovereign. He is the sovereign. To say that he is the sovereign means he is the king. He is supreme over all creation. This is what Paul explains in verses 15 through 17. Specifically, he shows us four ways in which Christ is the sovereign over all of creation. First of all, he says Christ is the firstborn over all creation. Christ is the firstborn over all creation. Look in verse 15, Paul says very clearly, Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Now, the, the, the key for us to say is, what does firstborn mean, right? What does that word mean? Because our understanding of, of what that word means is going to affect, uh, frankly, how we understand much of the rest of the Bible. And it's on this very word that confusion can come about. Because if you're confused about this word firstborn, that will lead to confusion about what it means that Christ has the fullness of God and that he is the image of the invisible God. In fact, this firstborn has been misunderstood by many people thinking themselves to be Christians who are in fact cultists throughout church history. So what does Paul mean when he says Christ is the firstborn of all creation? What does he mean that he is the firstborn? Typically, when we think about firstborn, if I were to say, he is my firstborn, what would I mean? I would mean that, you know, good-looking kid sitting there on the third row with a blue shirt. He is my firstborn Joshua. That's my firstborn son, my firstborn child, right? And that's what we think of, don't we? If you have uh, anything, we're thinking about physical birth and, and a temporal marker on that. But while the word does imply time, that's not to say that Christ is the first thing that God created. That's the mistake we can make. We think, oh, firstborn, that must be the first thing that God ever created was Christ. Don't think that way, though. Because the, the basis for our understanding of the Bible is not our culture. It's not our cultural understanding. Rather, it is the Bible's cultural understanding. Paul is writing in the first century. What does he have? He has the Old Testament, right? He has the Scriptures, the Word of God. It's that that's informing his thinking. So the question is, do we see firstborn? How does it being used in the Old Testament if it is? That's a good question. I'm glad that you asked that. So here's the, here's the answer to that question. Yes, the word firstborn does show up. And sometimes it means firstborn son or firstborn child. But there's a couple times when it doesn't mean that. In fact, a couple of very key places where firstborn means something different. In Exodus 4.22, the Lord calls Israel, the nation, his firstborn son. Now, what does that mean? Is that the first nation to come into existence? The first nation created by God? Absolutely not. But it is his nation. It is the nation through which he will give his law and mediate his presence and his glory to the rest of the nations. Therefore, it has a preeminence above the others. Likewise, in Psalm 89, God says of David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, we know David was not the firstborn king of the earth, do we? I mean, uh, David clocks in at about 1,000 B.C. There's a couple thousand years of history before that. There were lots of kings before that, even in recorded biblical history. Furthermore, David's not even the first king of Israel, is he? Saul is the first king of Israel. But David is always shown to be the greatest. Not perfect. Clearly a sinner. Nevertheless, he is the standard by which all other kings of Israel are marked by. 
And what God is saying is this. He is, he will be, I will make him to be the greatest of all kings of Israel. I will give him preeminence among the other kings. Furthermore, what's interesting is that this Psalm 89 is very much what's called a messianic psalm. That is to say, while all of the scriptures point to Christ, some are much more obvious and explicit and intentionally pointing to Christ. And this is one of those passages. While the text certainly has a fulfillment in David, it also has a greater fulfillment in David's greater son, the Messiah, Jesus. Therefore, in all of this, my point is this. Paul is not saying Christ was the first thing that God created. In fact, if that's what he says, he's going to contradict himself very quickly in the next verse. No, what he is saying is that Christ is supreme and exalted over all of creation. In fact, the NIV captures the meaning of the original better than the ESV, my translation does, in that it translates this verse, not the firstborn of all creation, but rather the firstborn over all creation. As God the Son, Christ existed before the rest of the creation, and he exists in supremacy over all of creation. Why? Well, we're told why he is the firstborn. It says he is the firstborn of all creation, uh, verse 16, for... By him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And then later he says again, all things were created through him and for him. So here's the second thing that we see. Christ is not just the firstborn over all creation. He is the creator of all creation. Christ is the creator of all creation. Again, Christ cannot be the firstborn, a created being through which all other things were created because the text doesn't say God created Christ, then created everything else. Paul is clear, by Christ, all things were created through him. Christ is not a creation, he is the creator. You can't, you can't squeeze that to say, well, everything else except for Christ. No, all means all, doesn't it? It means everything was created through Christ. And notice the supremacy of his work as creator. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This litany of expressions, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, these are all expressions of the first century that Paul is using to describe uh, spiritual forces. That is to say, very specifically, demonic forces. And Paul shows the Colossians that all things are under the authority of their creator. Why is he doing that? Because (coughs) as a people who were largely pagan, not Jewish in their orientation, they would have worshipped demons. They would have paid tribute to keep these demonic forces at bay from affecting their life. And even now that they are a Christian, they're worshipping Christ. They still think, I have to placate the other forces. I still have to placate these other entities, these other beings, or else they're going to come and attack me. And Paul is writing to correct that error of syncretism. He is saying, look, you don't have to worry about those things because Christ is the one who created them. Since he is the firstborn of all creation now, he exists in supremacy and authority over those things. If they're going to act, it's only with his permission. You need not fear them. Now, as we even think about that, the question is, what do we fear today? Do we fear demonic forces today? Well, there's a a razor's edge there because you've got two two things. You've got some people who basically more or less ignore them, assume that it's not real, it's something of a fairy tale, and they just, ah, forget it, we're not worried about that. Then there are others that, that frankly obsess over them. 
I can remember one of my older churches, there were these little things called chick tracks. There were these little cartoon booklets that you were supposed to give out. And, 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 and frankly, the makers of that had this view of demons that they were everywhere. They're hiding behind every bush. They're, they're, they're hiding under, uh, there's even one comic where they're hiding under the chairs in the church. And as the, the preacher is trying to share the gospel, they're pinching the baby's toe to get it to cry. Uh, I thought it was a bit much, in my opinion, okay? Um, I, I saw the mom pinch the baby. No, not season. But uh, the, the point is you've got to have this healthy ballast. Yes, they're real. Yes, they're powerful. But Christ is supreme. He is their creator. Though created good, they have fallen and rebelled. They are still his creation under his authority. And it's not just demonic forces. It's everything. It's your job, it's your well-being or your sickness. All of these things, Paul says, whether invisible or visible, all of these things have been created by Christ. And as the Creator, He has authority over these things. But more than just the Creator, we're also told that Christ is the sustainer of all creation. Paul says Christ is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He says here what Hebrews will later say in in chapter 1, verse 3, Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ created the world, but he didn't just leave it to go on its own. He didn't just say, okay, things look pretty good. Let's see what happens. No, Christ is now actively sustaining the universe. One of the... Uh, one of the paintings that, that you can see that came out of the, the medieval church is this picture of Christ up in the clouds uh, with, with uh, everything in heaven and earth below. And, and to every little thing, there is a tiny golden strand that has been painted in, going from Christ to that thing. Now, what is the painter trying to convey? He's trying to convey the sense of this verse, what Paul would preach in Acts 17 when he would say, it is in God, in Christ, that we live and move and have our being. He is the one that sustains all of creation. So every burning star in every galaxy, every newborn baby at the cellular level being knit together in its mother's womb, days, weeks after after it comes together as a fertilized egg, every bee pollinating flowers in the yard, every cell of hair growing or lacking growth, like me, on your body. Christ is sustaining all of these things throughout creation, moving them according to His desired will. And this brings us to the last thing. Christ, we saw, has been the firstborn of creation. He is the creator of creation. He's the savior of creation. But then He is also the goal of all creation. Christ is the goal. This is perhaps the hardest thing for us to get our minds around. We instinctively know there must be a creator. We, we, we know that just by looking at nature, even if we want to deny it. And the Bible tells us that that creator is God in Christ. If he is the creator, it's no surprise that he is also the creation's sustainer, and that he's exalted above all things. But notice what Paul says at the end of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. Think about that for a minute. All things were created for Christ. That means if all things were created for Christ, then nothing in this universe, nothing exists for its own sake. Just think about that for a minute. You think about a a God who, who clearly has a sense of beauty having created, well, my wife for one, but being outside, you think about some roses or some things that just naturally grow in nature that you just think, it's beautiful. We marvel at that. 
But that wasn't just created for its own sake. It wasn't just created to show us something of beauty. We're told all things were created for Christ. I think at the very least what that means is that all things are created in such a way that Christ would be glorified in them. The point of the universe is to magnify God the Son, the one who created it. So do you want to know, frankly, purpose in your life? What direction should I go? What should I be thinking about? What, 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 what motto should hang over my existence and all that I do? It's this. For Christ. That is your purpose in life. To live, to move, to have your being, to think, to love, to feel, and to hate. All for Christ. Pastor Ken Hughes tells the story of a South American company several years ago that bought a brand new printing press machine. And they bought it from a U.S. company that was supposed to be the gold standard in making these machines. And when the press arrived, all of the best engineers at this, at, this, um, uh, at this company began to try and assemble this thing and get it working. And they got it together, but it wouldn't work right. And, and they were frustrated. They had all their best people looking on it. And finally, they, they, they cabled back to the United States company and said, can you give us some, some assistance here? Can, can, you, can you actually, can you just send somebody down here to look at this thing? Send us your best guy you've got. Uh, you know, we'll pay for his airfare and everything. Just get this guy down here so we can look at this thing. Well, the, the U.S. company cabled and said, we're sending our best man down. And when they got there, he was young, very young, much more young than all the rest of these engineers. And they thought, what did they do to us? Well, what kind of person have they sent us here? This guy can't have, can't have any experience in this kind of thing. We wanted their best man. They've sent us their youngest man. So they quite angrily, cabled back immediately from the airport and said, your man is too young, we want a more experienced person. Soon the reply came back from the U.S. company, quote, he made the machine, he can fix it. They wanted the best, they got the best. They got the man who actually designed and made this, 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 uh, this model of printing press. Now when you think about that, think about this. If all things have been made for the glory of Christ, are they today? In some sense, no. I mean, just back to that show that, I, that we watched on that murder mystery. Here's a man who, for no good reason, not for the glory of Christ, snuffs out the life of another human person, a 17-year-old girl. Where is the glory of Christ in that? See, the problem goes all the way back to, frankly, not long after God made a good universe whereby we rebelled and sinned and brought a curse upon it. We took what would have been good, what would have been perfectly good for the glory of Christ, and we said, we don't want that. We want glory for ourselves. And the result of which is now not a good creation, but a creation marred by evil because of our rebellion. But Christ can take care of that too. Just like that man who built the machine could come and fix it and repair it and make it work correctly. So also now, the divine Son of God who created and sustains the universe, Christ also has come and exists as Savior so that all things can be reconciled back to God, no longer stained by evil, but fully and finally and eternally perfectly good once again. This is the, the third thing that we see. Christ's relationship to the church, He is the Savior. He is the Savior. And we see two things about this. 
from verses 18 through 20. First, Christ is the reconciler of the church. Reconciliation is the process by which two parties who exist as enemies are brought together in friendship. The hostilities have ended. The breach in the relationship has been restored. Two parties are now back in one accord. And we see this happening on small scales all the time, don't we? I mean, if, you're, if you have friends or, or even if you're married, this happens all the time. A disagreement between you and your spouse turns into an argument. A hasty word brings pain. Someone forgets a promise that was made. And what happens? There's friction. There is tension. There is hostility between you and your spouse. But hopefully it's not too long before that tension is resolved. The husband and wife admit their mutual sin. Forgiveness is given. The marriage is again of one accord. That's reconciliation. We see that all the time in small ways and in big ways, from friendships on the playground to employees in major corporations to even world governments. But what's amazing is that we see it from God. Understand this well. Unlike in every other circumstance where reconciliation takes place, where there is 99.99 repeating percent of the time, Sin on both sides, even if it's weighed one way or the other. There is sin at both sides that needs to be confessed and for reconciliation to take place. When it comes to our relationship with God, there is no sin on his side. There is no fault on the side of God. We alone are the transgressors. God hasn't done anything to grieve the relationship. In fact, in our sin, we've done the unthinkable. We have seen the exalted, preeminent God through whom all things remain and hold together and have their meaning. He gave us life and breath and everything, and yet we rebelled against Him. Though He deserved the worship of our lives, the obedience of our lives, the love of our lives, we rejected Him and refused to give it to Him. And instead of us acknowledging our sin and seeking to make things right, God took the initiative and reconciling us to himself. Listen to what Paul says in verses 19 through 20. For in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ, being fully divine, took upon himself full humanity to die on a cross in order that God's righteous wrath might be appeased towards sinners. Paul explains this further just above our passage in verses 13 through 14 where he says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, we experience reconciliation with God. He forgives our sins because Christ has made atonement for them. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we are free under the reign of Christ having spiritual life. And all of this is part of his larger work, bringing reconciliation not just to sinful people, but to the entire sin-cursed creation. Christ died to reconcile all things to God, but he didn't stay dead. Paul says, just as he is the firstborn over all creation, he is also the firstborn from the dead. That is to say, he is preeminent because he is the first to experience the resurrection of the new heaven and the new earth. All who turn to Christ in faith to receive his work on the cross, to trust that he is Savior and Lord, they too one day will experience resurrection from the dead with bodies unstained by sin, incorruptible, fit to live forever in the new heaven and the new earth. Christ was the first to go through that, paving the way for us. Therefore, as that resurrected Lord then, as Savior, he is also worthy of being the head of the church. This is the last thing that we see. As the Savior of the church. Christ is also the head of the church. Paul says straight out, doesn't he? He is the head of the body, the church. 
And unlike other places where Paul talks about uh, mutual dependence of the body of Christ for one another, here the essential preeminence is in view. Think about it just for a minute. When we play sports, when we drive cars, when we do dangerous things, what is the most important thing that we seek to protect? The head, right? You know, when I was, when I was young, I ran around all over the place on a bicycle, got scraped up, bruised up, fell off, thrown off, and now, all without a helmet, and now it's like elbow pads, knee pads, you know, back pads, nose pads, helmet pads, whatever, you know? It's like we're all padded up. And, and, and part of that's good, right? Because what happens if we get a head injury? The body don't work right. We lose the ability to speak properly. We lose the ability to control our bodies or our bodily functions in a way that we are designed for. The head is important. Likewise, likewise, Paul says Christ is the head of his church. Christ is the head. He gives spiritual life to his people. More than that, more than that, he provides leadership to his people. Paul says in chapter 2, It's holding fast to the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Christ is essential to the growth and the well-being of his people, the church giving us spiritual life and also providing leadership. Again, the head provides control, doesn't it? When I have an itch, frankly, it's not even a conscious thought. It just, it happens and I scratch, right? Does the hand ever say to the head, no, I'm not going to scratch the nose. Let the other hand do it. I I don't want to put the right foot in front of the left. Let's hop on the left foot for a while. I'm getting tired. It doesn't do that, does it? The the, the brain, the the head says, move. And the body says, yes, and it does it. Almost instantaneously. And likewise with Christ, you need to understand, he is the leader of this church. Pastor Richard and Pastor Joe and I all try to be good leaders, but we're just temps. This is not our church. It's Christ. And you understand that we are only good leaders insofar as we are directing you to Christ, to greater faith in Him, to greater love for Him, and to greater obedience to Him. Because He is the head of His body, the church. In 1893, Chicago hosted the World Columbian Exposition. Uh, It was an amazing event that brought... 21 million people to the city from all over the world, even before the popular uh, popularization of the automobile. So trains and planes and all these things. And they were there to basically show off exhibitions from around the world. And one of them was called the World Parliament of Religions. It was supposed to be the best from all of the world's religions coming together to discuss religion to offer correction and critique and encouragement of one another's beliefs and ultimately, possibly even to come up with one new world religion. Well, there was an evangelist named D.L. Moody in Chicago, and he saw all this as a great opportunity for evangelism, for telling people of the one true God, Jesus Christ. And so he gathered together preachers and established them all over the city, some of them in theaters, some of them uh, in churches, some of them in, in a giant circus tent. And he said, preach Christ. And people said, shouldn't we denounce? Shouldn't we denounce this world parliament of religion? Shouldn't we preach against it? And Moody's response was basically, we could do that. It's not right. You know it's not right. I know it's not right. But instead, I want to preach in such a way that I'm going to make Christ so attractive that men will turn to him away from that. Friends of Levels, this morning, I hope that as Paul has exalted Christ before you this morning, as he has shown him 
to be, the very Son of God, as He has shown Him to be the very Creator of all things, the, the Savior of His people. I hope that you will see His preeminence, His supremacy over all things, and that that will encourage you to turn away from trusting anything else other than Him, to turn away from worshiping and loving anything else other than Him. Because at the end of the day, we need Christ. We cannot overcome sin and go to God by ourselves. We need Christ. We cannot have spiritual life through our own good deeds. We need Christ. We cannot have hope in this life apart from Christ. For all things are for Him. We need Christ. And so whether it is for the first time ever in your life, or perhaps it is for the fifth time this hour, this morning we need to turn in faith towards Christ, trusting Him. Trusting Him to be our great head, our Savior, the one who's reconciled us, and the one who will lead us, who will lead us in a path of life that will not only be good for us, but will be in keeping with the purpose for which we have been created, His own glory. Believing in Him, we will find the strength that we need to live in the way that He calls us to live. So this morning, I encourage you, look to Christ as Creator, Savior, Sustainer, leader of your life. Find, find peace with God through him and find strength and encouragement and direction to live in a way that honors the one who died for you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Christ and we pray, God, this morning that having seen your teaching from your word that we will be able to truly live for him in all that we do. Father, for those that do not know Christ, we pray, God, that you will open their eyes, give them spiritual understanding of the gospel that they might come to faith in him. For the rest of us, God, help us to continue to live not in our own strength, but by faith in the one who has been strong for us, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.